And welcome back, folks, to Make Mine Multiversity, a Marvel podcast. We are your home for all things Marvel comics on the Multiversity Podcast Network. If you're coming to us from Apple Podcasts or from another place where people get podcasts in the ethereal realm of where people get podcasts, uh, please subscribe. Leave us some fun comments. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, and if you're coming to us, uh, and then also if you're, co- you know, if you're coming to us from iTunes uh, and you haven't heard of multiversitycomics.com, uh, check out that great site for a ton of comics news, reviews, and other fun content there, and a ton of other podcasts. If you're coming to us from Multiversity Comics, uh, thank you. Uh, check out some of the other fun things on that site. Subscribe to us on another podcast place and just leave us some some thoughts in the comic in the comments so that we can we can chat with you. Uh, on this episode uh, today, we're having another one of our movie times with Nick and Kevin in the first part of the episode and the second part, uh, Jess will be on and we're going to come together and talk about the Unstoppable Wasp. Um, I realize I didn't introduce myself. I'm Kevin Gregory. With me at this this first part is Nick Palmieri. Uh, Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. <laughs> doing good. Nice, <laughs> nice. I feel yeah. like we always do the like the the Kurt sort of like yeah, you know, I'm doing good. I'm okay. Yeah, Things are okay. But there's like a little bit of difference every time, so you can like get a little bit of emotion in there. Like today was I'm good, but last time was like yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. You could, it's, it's a little bit of inflection. It's just the, the tiny little bit. You can catch it. Um, cool, cool. Well, for this first part of the episode, uh, Marvel released this last week the newest installment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, this is movie 19, 18, 19, one of those. 20, I think. Uh, I think 20. 20? It might be 20. It could be 20. Yeah. Um, anyway uh ant-man and the wasp came out as the sequel to the 2015 ant-man uh starring paul rudd evangeline Lilly, michael douglas uh michelle pfeiffer lawrence fishbane and others uh and nick and i are going to talk a little bit about ant-man and the wasp uh for a little bit kind of give our thoughts our reviews uh and let us let you know what we think about it we are probably going to spoil this movie so if you haven't seen it yet uh pause pause the podcast go see it come back if you don't mind spoilers um keep listening or just read the new york times uh and let's begin so nick what were what was your like sort of initial takeaway uh for this this movie we'll start there um initial takeaway so i i enjoyed it i thought it was a fun Friday afternoon on my day off that I never <laughs> would think about again, which was sad and unfortunate because I really loved the first one, but otherwise it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's what uh, the the reviewer who reviewed it on, on Multiversity Comics, I think they kind of said, you know, yeah, it was a fun summer flick. It was a fun action comedy. I don't know that I would think about it again um yeah like, yeah that was kind of my oh go ahead like i i didn't mind using my movie pass on it but i don't think that i would have liked to pay for it 
for real. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, excuse me. I rarely, you know, get out, get to go to the movies and stuff. So I had, I was free Monday afternoon, got to go see it. I was really excited, had a beer. It was, it was great, you know? And then I was like, this movie's, this movie's okay. Um, but you mentioned that you, you really loved uh, the first Ant-Man movie. So what, what did you love about the first one um, that you were a little bit disappointed with this one? So I thought the humor in the original was a lot more, there was a certain quality to it that you just don't get in a lot of movies. I hesitate to say the word quirky, but I feel like that's the like closest word to what I mean right now. Um, but yeah, it just had a really unique charm to it. And I feel like the humor in this movie was a lot more generic. Um, and that's like not even talking about the plot. That was just like my biggest concern with the movie. I guess my biggest reason why I didn't enjoy it as much as the first one. Um, but I mean, if we're talking about the plot, like there was just 20 moving parts and none of them felt particularly great or interesting. And none of them had a primary importance. They all just happened alongside each other. Um, so it, I felt like it wasn't, it just didn't grab me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the, the first one, I kind of had that thought too. I was, uh, I saw this movie, it was, it was on a Monday afternoon, you know, and in the summer. Uh, and I was in the theater with, there were a lot of like, parents with their like kids uh and there were maybe like five five seven something like that times that everybody in the theater just like laughed a lot like most of the times that stuff would happen on screen that was supposed to be funny uh scott lang would do something that was supposed to be funny or quirky and and it was just dead silence Mm. um and i think that was way different from when I saw the the first Ant-Man. Like I remember that movie being like really hilarious mm-hmm. and like it had like a streamlined pot. Yeah. Like you were saying like this, it's, it's a heist film, you know, it's like, there's, there's a stuff going on with, with hope and um, hope and Hank with, with the, like the lab stuff, but then like, then Scott's got his stuff going on with, you know, his divorce and with like being a crook, but all those things were like flowed together in a way that really makes sense. And yeah, you're right. Like there was like 30 different things going on in this movie and they just kind of all ended at the end. And that's really what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I noticed, especially in the first quarter of the movie, um, a lot of Paul Rudd's performances, I thought he was great pretty much throughout, but it felt like he had multiple takes of like each line and the editor or director, whoever, just chose the most conventional one every single time. Like, that's a really weird thing. <laughs> like, and I don't know if that's true, but that's how it felt to me. Yeah. Like, it just, it just felt like everything was done in as conventional a way as possible. And I feel like that robbed it of some of what could have been charm. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had that thought too. Like, there were times that that Paul Rudd would say things. And I was like, I know this is supposed to be a joke, but you're saying it like, so like blandly and not in like a bland, sarcastic way, just in like a, eh, you know? Yeah. And like, uh, like, you... like the, the moment when, Oh, go ahead. 
Like you, you know that he can do much better. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like that, the moment at the end of the movie when like he gets his his ankle brace off and like he's talking to um, the like uh, CIA agent or whatever you know government organization they were, um, and he's like, oh, you know, you don't want to grab lunch, and he's like, the, like they do like the back and forth about oh, like God. the lunch thing, and I was like, this is not, yeah. this is not funny. <laughs> like I know this is supposed to be funny, like this is supposed to be like a stupid banal interaction, but like man, this is no, mm-hmm. no. No, just dead quiet. Yeah, uh, if if that were like, like in a comic written out, like you could do the, you could make the interaction kind of funny on your own in your own head, but like maybe that's the sort of thing where yeah. like no matter who it's saying it, like it just doesn't sound right out loud. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it was in a comic, it would just sound like Bendis dialogue, where it would just be like, yeah. "You want to grab lunch? Why would we grab lunch?" I just raised it like you want to like oh we should grab lunch like do you actually want to grab lunch or like yeah we could grab lunch and it's like no we don't need to grab lunch and it's like oh you know you want to grab and it's just like that like weird back and forth that's just like has bubbles that go all the way around the screen or mm-hmm. around the page that's exactly like when I pictured that in my mind like said uh like mm-hmm. a comic book I imagine like a Bendis two page spread and it's just one character on one side one character on the other the entire middle of the page is dialogue yeah 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 no agreed 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 um well cool so i so i i you know agree that, that what you're saying like that it was it felt very overcrowded i think one of the things that i thought was i guess not interesting but like i was i was curious about it. i want to hear your thoughts on so the movie so they retitled the movie when they uh, you know like announced the sequel i think it was like announced as like ant-man 2 and then they you know they came out it's like oh this is, this is ant-man and the wasp and this was supposed to be sort of this like big moment where uh like finally there's a female superhero that gets her name in the title of the movie and like her in her in like a, a hope van dyne like evangeline lewis character and and scott lang like you know paul rudd's character like they're supposed to be sharing sort of equal screen time and then you have michelle pfeiffer that that comes in and she's like the you know the older version of the wasp she's the the janet van dyne movie and i really felt like this was still a Scott Lang movie. Mm-hmm. And it bothered me that it was supposed to be touted as this, this partner movie. Did you, did you feel that also? Is that, yeah. was that just me? Yeah, it, that's exactly how I felt. And I didn't know that the movie was retitled. I thought it was Ant-Man and the Wasp from the beginning. So when I, like when I finished the movie, I was like, I feel like we didn't get anything with her. Like there was that one scene in the beginning when she's going to get that part from the Southern guy and she like has that fight scene. Yeah. Go show oh that. God. That... <laughs> I guess we'll talk about him in a second. <laughs> just the whole, just all bad, bad <laughs> Southern stereotypes. And, and I, I get, I get mad when people dis- disrespect my people, but okay. go ahead. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the, but yeah, I, I felt like by the end of the movie, like I barely knew her. I felt like I didn't really know who she was or i mean she wanted to save her mom but that was also like her dad's goal like i felt like she didn't have Mm -hmm. anything to define her on Mm -hmm. her own Mm -hmm. yeah i i i agree with that i was really excited at the like the very first scene of the movie when uh it's hank and and janet and they're like they're they're about to have to go on their like last mission or whatever but like 
Janet and, and, and Hope are like playing together and, and she's calling her, you know, jelly bean. And she's like, I'm going to come back. Like, we're going to come back and, you know, do things like I just got to go be a superhero, whatever, but everything's going to be fine. Like, I thought that was like super cute and adorable uh, and like a really good scene. And I thought that was going to set the tone for the rest of the movie. I mean, like I knew that we were going to have to check in on, on Scott Lang. Cause you know, he was like doing all the fallout stuff from, from so from, cap civil war when he got arrested and but i really thought that like that was going to be the driving point of the movie is this you know like search for the mom and like the the scott stuff was going to be side you know side fodder uh and i thought bad bad southern stereotype guy was going to go away after that one scene but it just all kept coming back and there was just all these different moving parts and i really wanted the like the the trying to rescue michelle pfeiffer's character to be like the thing and really like the only thing in the movie. Uh, and, and it didn't get, we didn't get that. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, I felt like that plot line gave some of the best scenes. Mm-hmm. Like I thought the best scene in the movie was uh, when the mom takes over Scott's body and he's like acting like, her. Oh yeah. I just thought that was a really yeah. great moment, like genuinely funny. And I felt like he did that so well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but then, like, the Southern guy, like, the entire time I was like, I don't even know what he wants. Does he just want their technology? Is that it? Like, what does he want to do with it? Who is he? I just felt like we didn't have enough to go on. And it was just, he kept on showing up, and we knew that he was bad. But we, like, and we were just supposed to be like, oh, no, he wants something. (laughs) Now I'm scared, you know? Um, And then... There were okay. So speaking of like all the plots going on, so we had the stuff with the mom, and then we had the southern guy, and oh, okay, the ghost woman. Like what? Yeah. (laughs) Like I felt like she was, she was fine. She I don't think she was necessarily ill-defined. I think her backstory was a little Mm -hmm. generic, uh, but. I feel like her modern day stuff was an issue just because it was like, I felt like if, why was she an antagonist? Like, why couldn't she just like talk to them and be like, help me? That was totally my thought too. Oh, (laughs) no, keep going. (laughs) Yeah. I no, that's all I had to say. You can, you can pick up from here. Yeah. I, so I thought that too. I was like, yeah, why is why is this ghost character supposed to be a villain or whatever? And then why is why is uh Lawrence Fishbane's character who was who like was built it was Bill Foster, who is an actual hero in the comics, and he's like acting sketchy and like doing the sketchy stuff, and he like turns around in the end and and everything's okay, and he's like, No, you you go rescue Janet. I'll I'll try to you know coax uh, coax this this girl that I've I've taken under my wing down a little bit, but man, yeah, it 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 just didn't make any sense to me because if if and I, and I get it, you know, it's like a pride thing. Like Hank had burned him uh, and written him off, and that's bad. And sure, sure, 
But you literally could have just been like, oh, you're trying to save your wife? I really need your wife because I need the shit that's in her body from being trapped for 40 years. Uh, my selfish goal needs to supersede your sort of heroic-ish goal. Whatever. And there could have been conflict just in that. You know, as opposed to like everybody keeping the secrets from each other. Like, if they had talked about it, that could have been, like, a lot more interesting of a conflict, I think, because there's just more to work with um, on, like, an emotional level. Um, but then, yeah, his character and Hank, I really liked their, like, cattiness toward each other in their first scene together. I thought that was a lot of fun. But then all of a sudden he just turned into this, like, mustache twirling Mm -hmm. villain and he just lost it just lost that fun dynamic that they had yeah yeah i i agree with that and also like i think the conflict of look you're trying to save your wife i'm trying to save your wife i want to save this other this other woman it might kill your wife to do this thing like i think that's a far more interesting conflict than seeing seeing southern boy try to go around you know doing whatever and and maybe that's just me and and it just seems more interesting because it has like more ethical or moral implications and you can't really shoot an action scene where you know bands are flying everywhere or whatever uh when when that's the case but you could have done more like quantum realm stuff and and not that like i'm super into cgi everything but that would be really cool well, they, they also could have turned against each other, like maybe tried to talk it out, and then they realized that what each other wanted was like at odds with each other. And then like the action scenes that would have ensued would have had a lot more emotional resonance, and they would have been more fun to watch for that reason. Sure, sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I was also, because then, then what happens, it's like Janet comes back, and she recognizes that, you know, this ghost character has these issues because of the of the quantum realm and she just like goes all voodoo magic on her and then she's okay Mm -hmm. and that just seemed like a really abrupt ending to the conflict like it doesn't i don't know that it necessarily seems out of character for for like uh for janet van dyne to you know want to help people or want to do something selfless but i don't know how she really did it i just know that she had weird you know MacGuffin quantum energy in her body and that's that's what was needed and i i think that in that sense and in in some other things i i think that like that michelle pfeiffer's character was was really underutilized and sort of underserved in that way like we just said the best scene of the movie is the part when paul rudd is pretending to be michelle pfeiffer and that's not even that's not even her acting i mean like it's her character sort of but it's not her uh, and that kind of bummed me out a little bit. Yeah. Um, so how did you feel about all the Scott and Cassie stuff? Oh, that was really cute. Uh, I do. Mm-hmm. That was. And like, that's another center for the movie. Like if they'd, have, if they'd have played up the parallels of like Scott and Cassie and Hope and Janet. Um, and like played on that emotional conflict or like not not emotional conflict, but just like that tension and sort of like those relationships, 
then the stuff with with Hope and her mom, I think, would have been a lot stronger because we would have had this like modern day representation and this like past representation and then this conflict of like, well, I really need my parent back. Uh, but no, I thought all the stuff with with her and Cassie were some of the strong, stronger parts of the movie. And there was like a CBR article yeah. which was like, oh, now she's going to be a young Avenger and they're going to make a young Avengers movie in phase four. Uh, which also CBR ran an article that was like, did you see these 15 cameos in, in Ant-Man and the Wasp? And it was, some of them were literally people that were actual, you know, like cast characters in the movie. Was one of them Ant-Man? Uh, no, but one of them was Scott Lang's ex-wife. And it was like, she was in the first one. Like she may not have had a lot of lines, but that wasn't a fucking cameo. Like she got name billing. Anyway. She FaceTimed with them when they were tied up in a chair. exactly she was a plot point whatever yeah that was cute um a lot of i really liked how they handled just the concept of like scott is this single like father on the weekend um Mm -hmm. i just it was really fun to watch him like deal with those things and i like not that i'm a father or anything but like i can totally relate to like that you're on like you're trying to enjoy like your one day off and then like people keep calling from work and then like your family's calling you and then like your friend needs something from you. And like, that's how I felt like that whole scene when he was uh, in the lab with uh, Hank and Janet and like people keep calling him. That's, I really connected with that scene. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And that, that came naturally out of <clears throat> the relationship between him and Cassie. Um, so yeah, I, I really liked all that stuff. But like you said, it felt like it was all just thrown in there. It didn't like have as much plot relevance as it could have. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was really just used every now and then for like a little joke or a little like unrelated emotional moment. Yeah, yeah. And and it all, I mean, like the movie, I guess if you count uh, like Bill Foster and Ghost characters, like the movie is about, the relationship between parents and and their kids in some ways. Um, But none of it, it just all felt so disparate that it never really came together in the way that it should have. But like, yeah, the moments with, with him and, and Cassie, like the moment when she's saying like, you just need a partner. And she's like, I want to be your partner. And he was like, Oh, I wish that you could be, but like, you're not a superhero, a superhero. And then she like gives him permission to go and, and save the day, even though it might land him back in jail. And I like, that was really cute. And I thought that was really, really good. And like really important. And then like the scene at the end of the movie where they're having like the drive in, but it's with a laptop and they're shrunk down. I thought that was a really cool idea. I liked, I liked that scene a lot too. I thought that was, that was, that was one of the few moments I laughed in the movie. Nice. Nice. So, um, I think we've talked through four of the five plot lines. Um, <laughs> what is what is the fifth? Um, I just had it in my mind. <laughs> okay, so there's Scott trying to get on parole. Oh, there's oh, wait. yeah. So there's there's two more. There's the parole one, and then there's XCon. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the parole thing. It was funny the first two times. And they they raid they they literally raid his house three times. Like it's almost the same scene 
verbatim <laughs> three times. Uh, and that That's was, rule that of was three. kind of our play. Rule of three. Okay. Well, fine. If you do fine, it three whatever. times, so that makes it funny. I guess. I did laugh the, <laughs> the first time when they raid his, his house and his do- his Cassie's asking um, Agent Wu. Is that right? Wu? Jimmy Wu? I'm going to go with it. I don't know. Okay. Uh, and she's like, many why do you keep learn anybody's names? That's, I don't even know what the Southern dude's name is other than Southern Stereotype. Uh, she's like, why do you keep coming here to try to get my dad? Because he's a good guy. And like, he fought with Captain America. And then he like goes through the laundry list of, of dumb law shit. And then Scott's like, oh, you're such good with kids. And he's like, he's like, thanks, I'm a youth director. I, I lost it at that line. <laughs> that was really funny. That one was yeah. good. Uh, but then they did yeah, it two more that times. That line was so good. I was like, nope. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, that, that moment that you just mentioned when he's like listing all mm-hmm. the things, it was like, okay, this is a way that you can drop a whole bunch of exposition from previous movies. <laughs> I don't know if it's yeah. effective for anybody who didn't see them. Um, mm-hmm. But okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But and that, it also. That whole thing. Sorry, you go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I, I didn't even know what I was going to say. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're just on our bullshit, folks. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, like that was a that was a cool, like there was a lot of exposition and then it was like, oh yeah, you know, he came to help Captain America in Germany and that was bad and it violated a bunch of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, it kind of answers the question of of why he hasn't seen Hope in a few years and why they're like her and Hank are, are mad at him because he didn't he just like left when Captain America calls, which I guess if Captain America or really if, if Chris Evans came to me and said, hey, hey, I need you to do this very specific thing, I would probably go no questions asked. Like he's hot and, you know, like, <laughs> sure, uh, whatever. It's Captain freaking America. Um, mm-hmm. But I did think it's weird that he didn't mention it to them and be like, hey, I got to go help you know, cap because they would have, they would have probably been like, Oh, okay, well, look, we'll, we'll come help you too. Like this seems important. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, it was a good, a good way to just drop. Here's all the stuff that you might've missed if you didn't watch Captain America civil war. Yeah. So, but that, that whole plot line, like you said, it was just, it was a joke that got overplayed. Um, and I don't even (laughs) really know if it was funny the first time. Um, it just it was just more suspense to add because I guess there wasn't enough in the other scenes. Um, yeah, it really didn't have a reason to be there. I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I agree. Plot number six. So there's <laughs> plot X-Con. number six. The the stuff with with XCon. Yeah. Uh, so I thought. One, I thought so. I thought that was interesting. I wish we'd have spent a little bit more time there in a little bit more like serious way, rather than just we're making jokes about this the whole time. I did think it was cool because it was sort of, I guess, I think drawing a little bit from like Nick Spencer's run on Ant Man with Scott Lang when he was running a sort of didn't he? I think he was running like a security something like that. It might have been called XCon too because it was like him and a bunch of other villains. Uh, I only read like an issue of that. So I may not really know what I'm talking about. Uh, 
But I think that's a that's a fun idea. No, I don't. I don't. Uh, (laughs) Just establishing that for everybody at home or on their treadmill or driving to work. We don't know what we're talking about. Uh, But so, yeah, so I I think it's a cool idea that to get a, a bunch of people who are trying to, you know, do their do their lot in life and like oh yeah we'll we'll run a security agent agency because we know how to steal things from people and we know how criminals think that's a that's a great that's a great idea the only the only scene of that that really worked for me was the sort of flashback scene that um that they did like they did in the first movie where yeah i forget what the guy's name is is doing all the flashback stuff yeah luis luis um because that was funny but Mm -hmm. But again, it's like they just they just ripped it from the first movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I f- that just goes back to the fact that I felt this movie as a whole was just conventional uh, and as an extension, unoriginal. Um, or I guess yeah. in this case, it would be the opposite. Forget I said that. It was just unoriginal. <laughs> <laughs> and it ties Maybe. into my whole meh feeling about the movie. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. I was talking to... to to somebody after about it they asked me how it was and i can kind of compared it to to seeing iron man 2 where it felt like they were trying to recreate the magic of the first movie and they just threw all these different villains and plot stuff at you and they try to set up all this stuff for theoretically another movie or for more stuff going on in the marvel cinematic universe because you have to you have to think that the stuff with with Janet will lead somewhere and the quantum realm stuff will lead somewhere or I would hope. And, and maybe they're trying to build up the sort of like street level crime side of the universe. Although I feel like the, the Netflix movies kind of have that going for them, but really only in, in New York, but really things only happen in New York and all the Marvel movies uh, or in <laughs> Marvel comics in general. Uh, so, so that's, so that's, Maybe the stuff's going there. Uh, but yeah, it just felt it just felt like a balloon. Like there was just like so much and then it like popped and there was nothing. I don't know. Yeah. So about uh X Con, um yeah, I like the concept and I felt like that was a storyline that was pretty uniquely geared towards adults. Like I feel like kids wouldn't really like understand that oh, yeah. whereas i felt like the movie as a whole was a lot more kid centric like it was a lot more accessible to younger audiences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, yeah. I feel like that plot line just sort of highlighted the fact that everything else was pretty like leaned pretty young even if like mm-hmm. all the characters in all the XCON scenes were pretty goofy in a way that younger audiences could enjoy too sure Sure. No, I I I agree with that. Um, yeah, it could so, have almost it could have almost been rated PG. I guess minus mm-hmm. I guess like the handful of times they said shit. <laughs> and that mm-hmm. one uh, scene of the parents exploding. Oh yeah 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 that yeah of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so uh, from we talked about a lot of story and we talked about like a little bit of acting. Um, how did you feel about the other actors besides Paul Rudd? So I love, so I love Michelle Piper. I hate that she 
felt like she really didn't have very much to do in this movie. And I also hate, and I'm sure that we'll talk about the mid credit scene in a second, but that uh, like the setup stuff for Avengers Infinity War, that the only character that's still on the table or the, all the setup for the Avengers four, that the only character that's still on the table after Thanos snaps his fingers is, is Paul Rudd's character. Cause I think it would have been cool to have Michelle Pfeiffer and, um, and like Evangeline Lilly's like the, like the wasp in, in Avengers four. Uh, I think that, so I think that Evangeline Lilly did the best of what she was given. And I think that I have to imagine that there's a lot of stuff that got put on the chopping block. Cause it, it felt like she was really like, I got to save mom. Cause like she's been in there for forever and I want her to be proud of me. And there's that thing. And I thought, and I thought she sold that pretty well. I thought Michael Doug- Douglas phoned it in a little bit. Um, and then everybody else was kind of forgettable. And I love Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> and he didn't really do very much in the movie. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that was the directing and editing. Because like I said earlier about Paul Rudd, like I feel like that could be the case for the rest of the actors also. Like maybe they had more interesting performances and maybe they even gave them, but maybe uh, the director or even like, like producers uh, said, no, no, we're going to go this other direction. That is really generic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or it could have been because, because Peyton Reed directed both of them. And I know that like the first two Iron Man movies, the same guy directed both of them. Um and I think there was a lot of like studio interference. So it could have been some of that, like Marvel just saying, this is, look, this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. With Peyton Reed uh, as a director, um, I feel like in the first movie, there were a lot of things that, because originally Edgar Wright was going to direct it. So I feel like maybe oh, right. Edgar Wright came up with like a lot of ideas for like cool visual things. And then maybe those survived and it just happened that, Peyton Reed was the director by that point, um, and he incorporated some of those ideas. Um, or um, I think as a whole in the original Ant-Man, he um, he didn't repeat things a lot. I felt like the, all the, I mean, let's be real, Ant-Man shrinking down and like all that stuff, it's a gimmick. But the way that he mm-hmm. does it, um, I felt like he didn't repeat as much in the original. Like, I felt like this movie, it was the same thing, like, oh, okay, now the cars are tiny. Okay, now they're big again. Like, oh, oh, good, okay, we're going into the Hot Wheels, like, car thing again. And then, like, in terms of fighting, it was, I felt a lot of the same thing, like, over and over. I just felt like all of the visual decisions were uh, repetitive. And I feel like maybe if he had been, like, if he had shaking it up a little bit more, maybe it would have been more interesting. Yeah, I think that's really fair. I think I remember thinking uh, after the first one that there was a lot of sort of of wonder and uh, like fantasticalness with the fact that Scott was shrinking down so small and there was like the scenes in in the tub and there was just all this stuff that really felt like it showcased sort of the fact that they were tiny and there was less of that in this movie. 
Uh, like there was a scene where where Wasp is you know fighting the like the goons in the kitchen, but I think that that and that was in the trailers even. Uh, that really felt like the only scene that I can remember that sort of showcased the wonder of being that small and seeing the universe is that big. And maybe a lot of that was Edgar Wright before he left the movie. And that's why a lot of it stayed. That's a good point. Yeah. And I mean, I could be completely wrong, um, but I feel like there was definitely a smoothing out of the more interesting rough edges that the original had. Um, And yeah, that again, that could have been director. It could have been producer. It could have been anything. Mm -hmm. I did remember noticing when the credits were rolling that this movie had five writers who were credited. And I feel like <laughs> usually when there's more writers, that's like a telltale sign that, oh, there was there's a lot of different shit going on. Well, I'm pretty sure that the original had four um, just because it had uh, oh, it might two have. originally. Yeah. And then two different ones came on once the director switched. Um, whereas this, I'm I'm really not sure how the uh, writing process worked on this movie. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. You're right. Because the first one, it was Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish, and then they, and then Wright left, and then Adam mm-hmm. McKay, and, and then and then Rudd. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder did. if Paul Rudd was just uh, named as a writer because of, like, improvised lines or something. You know, like, oh, I wonder how much he, was... he actually had to do with it. And then Adam McKay is like, you know, Mr. Save the Cat. <laughs> so, like, he's all about uh, putting things into that very, uh, like, more structured uh, format. So it would make sense that, like, a lot of the craziness is still in there. It's just in a more digestible format for people. Yeah. Well, yeah, Adam McKay was like, Adam McKay was going to direct the first one after Edgar Wright, and then he left too, and then they got Reed. Interesting. Okay. Is that? I think that's right. I think there was. I could very well well be wrong. Clearly, I don't know anything. (laughs) uh, With the five writers on this one, like it probably went through a lot of different processes with a lot of different people, as opposed to being more organic. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like the only writer that stayed from the first movie onto the second one was was Rudd. He's the only one. Mm-hmm. So, and that again could be so just because, like, maybe he like improvised a lot of lines, or maybe he even like came up with a lot of stuff like on the days that they were going to shoot or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I want to get really quick before we wrap up to the to the mid credit scene uh, and just talk through that for for a few minutes and kind of where where the MCU is going going into the next year and then and then yeah so what did you think about, I wasn't so what did you think about about the 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 mid credit scene with all with all the four of them going back into the quantum realm um i liked it I don't, there's not much to comment on. I like that Ant-Man is still alive. Yeah. Um, this mm-hmm. movie really didn't give me a reason to care about the other people. <laughs> so like, bye. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I didn't really care for it. I thought it was interesting how they like waited until the very last possible moment to tie it into Infinity War. Uh, but otherwise, 
yeah, mm-hmm. nothing else. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I just, I just remember you saying when we reviewed Infinity War that you excuse me, weren't 100% sure whether or not this movie would take place before or after Infinity War. And I was like, I, th- I think it's going to take place before. And you're like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, they did wait until the, until the oh, very end. That was just me like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, the, yeah, they're right. There wasn't really a lot to go on here. I think I was mostly mad that that they got rid of both wasps because I wanted one of them to be in the next Avengers movie. And they might be, because I, I think Evangeline Lily is supposed to be in that movie. So I'm sure something will happen where they get all the people back and then they go and kick Thanos' ass or whatever. And that's, and that's what happened. Um, but I thought it would have been cool. Yeah. By now, Oh, I just—I thought it would have been cool if if she had been the one to live and not Paul Rudd's character because it really felt like, I mean the the rest of the people that that quote unquote died in Infinity War were were all of the new characters and you're left with all the old characters and so I guess following that pattern it makes sense that Paul Rudd was the one to live because he's already had a movie quote unquote and and Wasp hasn't had a movie yet, uh, but I wish that they'd have bucked that trend for for her i don't know mm-hmm. yeah so by now i mean since we talked infinity war i have made peace with the fact that these people aren't <laughs> dead um yeah i was sort of hoping that things would get interesting <laughs> um but yeah well i mean we all know that everybody's going to come back um so in terms of like what that means for the story now like for the people who are left, they're all going to get together. They're going to fight Thanos. They're going to save everybody. Everybody's going to come back. It's going to be like this really, really crazy mm-hmm. huge action scene. But um, yeah, the original one, the original Infinity War, Avengers 3, um, <laughs> didn't have Ant-Man yeah. in it. So it makes sense to me that he would have a role in the new one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of the characters... Um, like you said, like all the, the newer people were disappeared. So it's going to be back to the people who were, I mean, Ant-Man is fairly new as far as the Avengers are concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody who existed, I guess, pre-Civil War. Yeah. Um, is still in the Yeah. Movie. Like, so it's going to be a, a reuniting of those characters. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's definitely true. I just... I don't know. Maybe it's maybe my reaction toward it is based on like I keep seeing the the posts on Twitter of the the fan posters of what should be an all female Avengers movie and Wasp is in that. And I was, I guess, maybe in in the back of my mind, hoping that. I don't know, there'd be more established lady superheroes from the universe that they have now like, going into Avengers four. Um, and really all we have is Scar Joe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Her. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Wasp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wasp. Um, anybody else? I think like there's Nakia and Okoye. They're the only ones that I think lived. Cause, cause Gamora actually died. Mm-hmm died um and 
Nebula died. Nebula died. Right? Nebula died. No, Nebula's alive. Nebula's alive with okay. with Stark on on the planet. But she was n- never really anything. I just call her Amy Pond because, <laughs> like, the yeah. Guardians movies didn't give me any other character to put onto Karen Gillan's face. Yeah, come along, Pond. Um, yeah, yeah. That's when I stopped watching Doctor Who was after um, after Amy and Rory left. Uh, yeah and also the girl i was dating at the time and i broke up but that has nothing to do with it um (laughs) it's not like we were watching doctor who together anyway just kidding i'll cut that part that was will you (laughs) (laughs) no i don't know okay uh uh whatever um keep it raw keep it real uh any other thoughts on on ant-man and the wasp um, I'm kind of hoping they don't do a third one now because I don't imagine it being much better. Um, yeah, that's it. That's fair. I, I would like them to do a third one if only because I feel like that would be the only place that they would explore what was going on with, with Janet. Uh, and I just want to see more Michelle Pfeiffer. And so I hope she gets another movie to to really be the star in. But if it's anything like this one, if it's any, if this is any uh, indication of what a third movie might look like, then yeah, I wish that they wouldn't make a third movie. Uh, although, I mean, Iron Man three, it wasn't horrible. It was just it was just weird, and it and it didn't meet people's expectations. And so maybe a third. I mean, there have only been. What Thor's got three movies, Cap's gotten three movies, and the Avengers have gotten three movies. So they're the only ones. So they would be, it would be an oh, well, and Guardians is getting a third. But it, it's still that would be new. That's I new, think like, the goal is for, still. Mm-hmm. I think the goal is for like all the major characters to get trilogies, probably at least trilogies yeah, at least. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. Hmm. All right. Well, folks, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back after this commercial with Jess, and we'll see you in a minute. My name's Matt. And I'm Wes. And together we host That's the Issue, the comic book podcast that gets to know you through the issues that you love. Every month we take a random, tangent-filled look through comic books and pop culture. And along the way we cover everything from Doink the Clown to Mr. Blobby. Don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. We don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. (laughs) We do also talk about comic books as well. Like the weirdest comic books in your collection or your favorite comic book movies. So join us on the third Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com or wherever podcasts are found. Blobby, blobby, blobby! (laughs) I knew you'd do that well. That's why I put it at the end. And welcome back, folks. For this next part of the episode, we're going to be digging into one of the series that we've talked about quite a bit on the show, just kind of in passing, uh, The Unstoppable Wasp. Uh, and uh, and Jess is, is, uh, is back with us for this for the second part of the, of the episode. Jess, how you doing? I'm good. How, how are you guys? Doing, doing well. <laughs> Just had a, I guess a decent. That's the inflection. Yeah, it's the inflection. Uh, uh, just you know, had a conversation about how Ant Man and the Wasp was okay-ish, and uh, now we're gonna get into something that's really pretty great. Oh, it's so great! 
I'm so excited so we great. ended up picking this. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Cool. So uh, so with the, again, with the release of Ant-Man and the Wasp, it felt sort of pertinent to uh, cover a, a series that is kind of sort of related. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about the Unstoppable Wasp. I feel justified because on Marvel Unlimited, it was part of the click on this you know thing if you want Ant-Man and Wasp related stories, and it was there. So it, it makes sense. Uh, so the Unstoppable Wasp is written by Jeremy Whitley, with art by Else Chartier for the first, I probably said that wrong, for the first six issues. And then the seventh issue uh, was illustrated by Veronica Fish. And then the eighth issue was illustrated by Rose Stein and Ted Brandt. And then all eight issues were colored by Megan Wilson. Uh, this It's not a super old series. It began uh, last year in January, so January of 2017, and then ran eight issues. And it stars not Janet Van Dyne as the main character, but Nadia Van Dyne. So, uh, so, so Hank Pym and, and and Janet they were the original Ant Man and the Wasp from from Tales to Astonish back in the '60s. Both Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne they were they were married, and then they went on to they were part of the founding uh, Avengers group. It was them and and Thor, and Iron Man, and Hulk, and then Captain America got added a few issues later. Uh, I think we f- forget pretty often, but Janet Van Dyne is the one who who actually named the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so then, so in the movie, in the movie that, uh, you know, we just talked about in, in the Ant-Man movies and the MCU, uh, the Ant-Man in that, in that movie is Scott Lang. Uh, and Scott Lang was the, the second Ant-Man. He debuted in, in, uh, in 1979. And he was um, just, he was a thief like he is in the movie. And he ends up stealing Hank Pym's uh, Ant-Man stuff and then ends up becoming Ant-Man. But so what ends up happening really is that, you know, Hank kind of goes in and out and it kind of appears in the comics for the next, you know, few decades and, and him and Janet's relationship gets, gets put on the rocks and he, he hits her at one point. That's sort of the kind of famous, um, I don't know what what issue it is, but when people think of Hank Pym, pretty often they think of him as as an abuser, and they think of him, and they think of the one issue where where he hit he actually hits Janet, and then and then pretty shortly after that, I think they um, they get divorced or 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 whatever else, um, rightfully so. So so Janet kind of goes away. She hasn't really appeared very much in uh, in recent comic stuff. She's been off and on kind of a, a part of the uh, uncanny Avengers comics. Uh, I think the last time that she had any sort of prominence was in, uh, in 2008, 2009 in the uh, secret invasion event written by Brian Michael Bendis and then illustrated mm-hmm. by Lynel Francis Yu. And she actually ends up dying in that, in that comic and that event comic. And then, and then well, ends up a... actually not being dead. You know how what? last time uh, I had talked about how, uh, I was making that huge uh, run through Bendis comics. Yeah. Well, I hadn't read Secret Invasion yet still. <laughs> and now I wish I did. <laughs> I didn't know that she died. Oh, might be. I'm sorry. It's cool. Don't worry. I'm surprised I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that happens. But she comes back. She's like not really dead because comics. Uh, yeah. Um. So then... 
so there hasn't really been, I guess, the the most recent Ant-Man comics. Uh, Hank's kind of been off the table for the last few years. I don't know that he's really been in a lot of series uh, recently. No, because something happened with him in Ultron. Right. I don't remember what it was. Some something happened. I think it was in the in the Remender something he he wrote. Something Remender wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It had something to do with Pym and Ultron, and I'm pretty sure what he wrote is why we haven't seen either one of them for a while. But I don't remember what happened. God, I wish I could remember. I should have. No, he's. Up. It was in that. It was in that like graphic novel or something that Remender and somebody else did, I think. But like he ended up fusing with with Ultron or something. Yeah. So it's like him and Ultron yeah. are sharing a body so he's right been now gone for a while because and... of that. I, he, he's going to end up coming back as like some yeah. big villain. And it's going to be really silly. <laughs> well, I think he's in Infinity Countdown right now. Is he? Um, he's Ultron's like kind of the one of the bads in that in that whole spiel. That makes sense. Um, it's all weird because he was in he was in Secret Empire for a hot second, uh, and he has been in the most recent run of Uncanny Avengers as like a villain because that's where Janet showed back up again. Uh, but I think he's kind of doing infinity countdown stuff right now. So really see, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I don't, I don't know, but the most recent Ant-Man books have been, have starred Scott Lang Mm -hmm. and they've, I think there was, there was the Ant-Man and like it was the all new, all different Marvel relaunch. And then right before that, I think it was, the title was astonishing Ant-Man. Uh, and both of those have been written by Nick Spencer. I forget who they were illustrated by. Um, I think Steve Lieber, um, but I'm not sure. If that's right. Uh, and so and so that's so Scott's kind of I mean, I guess sort of uh, con- congr- congruous with his, you know, appearances in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has kind of been the main Ant-Man. But in 2015 or in 2016, during uh, Free Comic Book Day, Marvel debuted uh, who the character who was then known at that time as Nadia Pym. And she's a new wasp. She's a version. She's um, she's she's a wasp. She's Hank's daughter Mm -hmm. but from his his first marriage to this other uh woman named uh named maria who i think date is is uh, one of the characters from from tales to astonish so was you know kind of debuted back in the 60s and everything else now kind of a minor character so i don't think that they really had a lot of issues together and uh and so nadia nadia appears in in all new all different avengers and the free comic book day issue uh, from from Mark Wade and Adam Kubert, and then stays a part of the all new all different Avengers. Ends up starring in Mark Wade and Mike Del Mundo's Avengers comic in um, Marvel Marvel Now 2.0 and Marvel Legacy, and I think now has gone on to become part of the Champions. But in in that brief period, she had her own book, and that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah, and they said uh, in some of the back matter uh, that she only had three appearances before um, before the Unstoppable Wasp series. And they were all in the uh, Mark Waid Adventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So she was in that one issue and the like the free comic book day issue. And then I think she had like a couple more issues after that where they like finished the arc that they sort of started in that in that issue. Um, but yeah, she goes on to, to be in this book, which appeared during Marvel now 2.0, which was kind of when they were given 
anybody and everybody a series. Uh, and a lot of a lot of people got really mad because all of a sudden we had the the Marvel lineup and it was made up of all these Deadpool adjacent characters. And that's when Ryu Williams became Iron Man. And so we had all these new and different characters and there was a lot of uh, nerd boys that were upset. But there was a lot of good series during that time that started during that time period. You know, we had Hawkeye and Iceman, ones that we've talked about multiple times on this podcast. Uh, so we're going to get into this into this eight issue series and sort of give you our thoughts, the reasons why we love it, the things that really, really work and make us really, really happy. In my case, make me cry a little bit. And then maybe some of the things that were like, yeah, but we'll start with Jess. So Jess, rereading this this series for the podcast, what are sort of your initial kickoff comments? Um. I think for me, like, one of the things that really stuck out is just Nadia's characterization. Um, Like, the whole eight issues really flows together nicely, but I really like uh, Nadia's positive attitude, despite all the stuff she's been through. Because I feel like, for some people, that might be kind of jokey, but I think that's really honest and sweet. And I think that's what makes her so special, that she kind of sees, like, the positive things in life, and she's always kind of looking on the bright side. And despite the fact that she basically had the same upbringing that Black Widow did, <laughs> and we see how different the two of them, they're, they're so different. Um, I think it's great that, like, Nadia is mm-hmm. still, like, a teenager. Mm-hmm. Like, she's still, she's completely clueless about a lot of things, but she's she's still fun and I really love her personality and just her honesty. And I, I'm not somebody who always looks on the bright side. So I, I kind of appreciate seeing that in a character because it's, it feels less cynical. Like her character could easily be very cynical and she's not. So I really like that. Um, I really like, uh, I really like how, um, the history of like Ant-Man and Wasp plays into it without, being overbearing like her father's brought up a lot but it's very much her story janet is in it but it's still very much nadia's story so i really like that i think that i think that's hard for um marvel and dc comics to do with legacy characters it tends the stories tend to be so heavy on the history and you kind of lose the new character in there but i feel like she very much this was very much her story um yeah, so th- those are kind of like my opening thoughts before we get deeper into some of the stuff that happens. <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I think overall just that that just that optimism. I mean, like I'm a I'm a pretty self-deprecating person. Uh and so to have something like this that and to have a character like like Nadia that's just constantly optimistic and and just like honest, uh, I think is, and I think it's just super cool. And I think it, it it didn't come off in a way to me that was contrived. Cause I think I often, you know, see people who are really happy and I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, <laughs> but, but this, this wasn't like that. This really felt like this is who this character is and this is honest and this is, and this is real. And so, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, with that point, uh, Nick, what are your some of your kind of your kind of kickoff kickoff ideas? Well, I guess since we're all uh, talking about how optimistic we are, <laughs> I'd probably place myself like on the more optimistic side. Um, but still, I, I really liked what you 
both said about Nadi's character. Um, just it's very genuine, and you really like within the first few pages. I just had a huge smile on my face just because, like, I mean, if someone goes through the experiences that she went through, they always turn out to be this like dark and brooding character, um, or at least like very like to themselves. And Nadia, like she says within the first few pages, like, I'm like this because I forget exactly what she said, but it was something along the lines of like, like, I need to make the world better because the world isn't going to do it for me. That might be completely different from what she actually said, (laughs) but that was what I personally got from it. And like, super relate to that. I love it. It's a really great outlook to have. Um, yeah, I, I guess we'll we'll talk more about the series. Um, as a whole, I'm definitely less high on it than you guys are, um, but I, I do love the character. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I think there's like the the moment in the first issue, uh, which we kind of get we we get her backstory again, which we got a little bit in the the debut issues of of all new all different Avengers. So Nadia grew up uh in in the red room uh like like black widow did so the same the same program that produced black widow that produced all of these different uh russian russian spies and russian assassins uh, but nadia grew up in this sort of adjacent program in the red room she was recruited uh to the red room or or kidnapped or or was raised in the red room at an early age, but then they realized pretty early on that she was, she was really, really smart, just like Hank Pym. And so there's this other, this other group, there's the, the, the science room or the science club and it's, and it's Nadia and a handful of other uh, young girls that are just some of the, the brightest minds in Russia. And so they, they're tasked with, you know, not, not killing, not assassinating people like black widow, does but like building i guess like weapons or or just sort of being these like bright sort of sinister minds or whatever um but she escapes that she escapes that and she she ends up in in america and she's looking for for her dad she's looking for hank and she realizes that he's gone and then she kind of she kind of wants to to carry on his sort of like legacy or his sort of name in a way so there's this there's this moment at the in the first issue i think it's when uh, like Mockingbird and her talking or Miss Marvel and her talking. And she just says, I want to do everything. She just, she just has this like innate optimism of, I want to save the world. I want to have all these experiences. I just want to do this, that, and the other. And I want to do it all because this really shitty thing happened to me, but I, I have a lot of life left to make up and I think I can do it. And I think, I just think that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I found the two uh, exact quotes. So Miss um, Marvel says that's terrible uh, after Nadia has described uh, everything that she's gone through. And Nadia says, yes, but now it's over and I'm determined to make up that time to make friends, eat their delicious food and change the world. So let's go make me a Yankee Doodle, yes. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, a few pages later, she's talking to the uh, immigration lawyer mm-hmm. and, uh, and she says, well, if... Uh, someone says uh, they kept you locked away all those years and look at you, your little ray of sunshine. And then Nadia says, well, if I spend the rest of my life being bitter, then I never really escaped. And that's, 
I love that. That's so amazing. Much. It really is because yeah. yeah. I mean I don't know many people, if any, that would have that kind of outlook on everything. <laughs> so I I think that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I mean I could see why maybe somebody who is a little bit more cynical might say, "Wow, that's really corny. That's really silly." And I'm like, "Is it though? Like it seems like I don't know. It seems." It makes her feel very authentic, very unique to herself. And it's a really different way of looking at um, moving on from abuse without uh, forgetting it or, and, and this comes up at the end um, with, with Janet, it's it's not about forgetting it and it's not about necessarily forgiving it, but it's it's taking control of what happens to you now. And I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And I think that's, that, yeah, I really like that. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, it isn't just that she's innately naive. Mm-hmm. It's that she had this experience and she actively wants to move on from it. Like, she has perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the story, it's not like these eight issues go out of the way to not acknowledge the stuff that she went through. Later in the series, uh, I think it's like issues, it's se- It's like seven. It's right before the ending when they get attacked and, and Ying is in like, she thinks she's gonna die (laughs) and you could see all the trauma she went through and how it's coming back it's coming up and she lashes out at janet and it's like it's not being ignored it's there it's just she's made this choice to move past it i like that Mm -hmm. i would be less forgiving of i would be way less forgiving if the if the situation had been yeah well that stuff happened but we're just gonna move on like nothing like it didn't happen it's it's acknowledged but it's dealt with and she deals with it in her own unique way. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that's what really makes it ring true is that there's, there is all of this trauma and there is all of this upbringing. Um, and there's the positive conscious choice to say, no, I, not that, not that those things didn't happen. Not that I forgive any of those people. Not that I'm ever going to forget these things, but that's not who I am. And that's not who I want to be that this, this traumatic thing and this this thing that was my life is not me, um, and I think that's I think that's really really beautiful. Uh, also, Nick, that that page you were talking about where she's talking to the immigration lawyer and she's telling her story, I think that that is one of the most beautiful pages in the book. I was rereading the the comic earlier and like it's it's structured like she's talking to this, the lady in like the top right, top left corner. And then it kind of goes like zigzaggy through the page, but the middle of the page uh, and like all the panels that she's telling her past, like telling her story, it's in the shape of, of Hank, of Hank Pym's like Ant-Man helmet. Uh, And so it's like, she's telling the story about her dad and she's telling the story about her. uh, And it's just like, uh, uh, Chartier, Chartier, like she just draws that like very beautifully. And that's one of like a number of pages that just stick out because they're, they're just so interesting, interestingly structured in a way that really adds to the story. Yeah. And beyond that, um, like her art is really great. Um, also, uh, the lettering surprised me in that part because by the time I got to the end of the page, I was like, Whoa, I didn't even like think about how I read that. And then I looked back and I was like, that's really zigzaggy and weird. Um, it was just very good lettering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. For sure. So I kind of want to, I want to start with the first issue and then we can talk about like the middle 
few issues some and then kind of end with with the last issue because i think the first and the last issue while everything that happens in the middle is are really important i think the, the the beginning and the ending are the things that are the most emotionally impactful at least at least for me and and i could be wrong um but i love so i love this idea that the the first issue sets out to do and uh so so nadia's She's in the U.S. and she she's not a a U.S. citizen yet. Although I mean, like her dad's a citizen, so they just have to prove that she's actually Hank Pym's daughter. And that's that that I that whole thread follows through all eight issues. Uh, but her and and Miss Marvel end up teaming up with 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 Mockingbird with uh, with Bobby Morse, and and Nadia realizes that that Bobby Morse that that Barbara Morse is uh, is a uh, is a biologist is like mm-hmm. a biologist who got you know, almost recreated the the same super soldier serum that created like Captain America. And she's like flipping shit over that because she didn't know that Mockingbird was a superhero too. And like Mockingbird has this moment of saying like, man, people don't, people don't remember me for being the, the woman who was married to, to Hawkeye and fights with sticks. Uh, I just thought that that moment was really beautiful. And yeah. then, and then Bobby introduces the idea of the list in the Marvel universe. Um, and so it's like the list of the most intelligent people in the Marvel universe. And, and Bobby's like, they're all men. And, and Nadia's like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I just thought that was really, really clever. Like, what did y'all think about, about that idea about, about Whitley introducing that, that wrinkle into the, into the equation? Well, they, they definitely made it made sense. Um, made it make sense um, in terms of like they described well uh, who's like who's holding these tests who is making like these decisions of like who is the smartest how are they calculating it and like naturally they just wouldn't look at certain like subsections of people and there's like a history of oppression of certain types of people in that and I mean that's just like everything that happens in the real world (laughs) you know um so i thought that was really really cool way of approaching that topic in a way that i think is really digestible for a younger reader Mm -hmm. no i think that's i think that's true yeah go ahead jess i think too it's like it's i never thought i this book made me realize that the marvel universe is actually full of a lot of super genius people like a lot of a lot of marvel characters are scientists they're engineers they, they do something else other than just fighting crime and they don't all have like godlike power which i think makes a lot of it unique like you have reed richards you have tony stark you have peter parker you have moon girl you now have all the characters that appear in this book you have uh janet you have uh bobby and it's like even you have hulk you have all these characters that are actually really smart and i think that makes the marvel universe a little bit more unique to something like what dc does because a lot of those characters were kind of born that way or they had some accident um but they're not they're they're not necessarily scientists by trade i think that's kind of cool that this book is putting a spotlight on that and i think like in 2018 um for a book like this geared at younger readers particularly girls it's like yeah you can be a superhero and a scientist and it's cool and it doesn't matter if you're not a guy because we're gonna change that list and i love that 
I I'm just too, making and... this connection. Sorry, go on, Kevin. Okay, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. I'll, I can talk in a second. Okay. Okay. So, um, I, I didn't make this connection until right now, but um, it the the idea of like the list. It's sort of like you know fanboys making their lists of like who's the most powerful hero in the like Marvel universe, and like all the we've seen like ten thousand of those clickbaity articles. Um, 10,000 clickbaity articles about who the most powerful hero in the Marvel universe is. So, um, <laughs> sorry, I just like nested a joke inside a joke and I hurt myself. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, so yeah, it, it just reminds me of that. And like, of course, those people who are making those lists, like they just go for the people who everybody would have a reaction to who like everybody already knows. It's like the most powerful. Okay, uh, number one, Hulk. <laughs> number two, Thor. You know, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's that same concept, but like they did it in universe about like the smartest. It was a very, very cool way of playing with that idea. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's like it. That's a really, that's a really good point. I hadn't made that connection until just now. But you're right. That the list is like Shield's fanboy list of of oh who are the who are the coolest people in the universe or like who are the smart people and of course it would be all of the men that they interact with the most and i think the connection that i was going to make a second ago is that this list of people that they point to they're all they're all like like scientists like stark and and banner and and richards and they're all these sort of like explorers or whatever else and it's it's such a narrow a narrow focus and and not like Nadia makes a point uh in like the first couple issues where she's like um it's like intelligence doesn't equal creativity and I think that's really really true too and I think that gets not that not like a, a, a stick up that I have with the book but there there are like a lot of moments when at least more so in the beginning not necessarily at the end where where Whitley is is talking about all these sciencey things, and he's uh, referencing people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan, um, and these like sort of like pop scientists, I guess, like popular scientists, like I guess names that people would know. Uh, and I think it's obviously it's likely that like that Nadia would know who those people are, but I think it would have, at least for me, like that was a moment that I was like, oh this is kind of like a, an appealing thing. Cause it would have been even cooler for um, like for that idea of like intelligence and creativity to be played out a little bit more and to, I guess have talked about like some of the humanities things that are um, like also definitely uh, like measures of intelligence that like, cause the other thing I was thinking is that this list in the Marvel universe, it's only scientists. Like it's not uh, it's not authors. It's not artists. It's not, people who make music it's not philosophers uh it's just these people who explore the universe and like build these fancy machines um so yeah i don't know i i think it's a it's a definitely a cool idea and a cool critique and it's and it's it's played out really well i i think it would have been cool to take like the next step but that might just be me yeah it's a good point yeah that's an interesting point (laughs) <laughs> yeah but um i don't know i feel like i don't know if the series would have worked in the way that it does if they went that direction um just because the whole thing is about like 
like Jess was saying earlier, like, uh, hey, girls, you can be a scientist and a superhero. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like it was overall very pro-science, pro-women in the sciences. And, I mean, you're right. And I would have liked that direction, but I also feel like it's sort of just in its own uh, world as opposed to like what the series was actually going for. No. Yeah. 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 I think, and, and I, I, as somebody who's in grad school in a like a humanities department thing, I'm, I'm being an asshole. Uh, and I fully recognize that. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think we get just like societally get caught up so often saying that like, Oh, it's like being a scientist is like a mark of being an intelligent person. Um, that like, if you're, if you're a doctor or if you're a biologist or if you're a chemist or like, if you're doing research in a laboratory that like, that's what makes you smart. And like, those are the things that smart people do. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that that's, that that's true. Like, I think, I mean, I think that there are a lot of scientists that are also like, like, you know, people like, like Einstein or like those people, like those people were like well-read, like they wrote like very philosophical things too, uh, on the side of them on the same, on the side of them doing like all these scientific things. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm really just being nitpicky, but I think you're right. Like, I think the intent of the book and especially with all the back matter, um, and all the, like the back matter columns of, of highlighting all these women who read comics and are also, scientists or researchers or you know paleontologists or engineers or whatever else and doing all these cool research things yeah the point was to say uh yes young girls you can go and be scientists and do all these cool things too and that and and science like the like scientific field is probably one of the most i guess like um sort of like stigmatized and like male dominated fields anyway so it totally it totally makes sense that it definitely works i i just i'm glad Um, you brought up the back matter because i just wanted to say at some point during this that that is probably my favorite thing about the single issues i don't know what the collected editions look like but i hope they didn't take that out because they they included them nice okay good because like I'm thinking back to like shows I liked when I was a kid that were kind of educational, but still really fun. Like I'm thinking about like Magic School Bus and like uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, his show um, and just like how cool those things were. But then they also had like actual science and taught me things. And I feel like those interviews, if this is a book that's selling well in bookstores to younger people and it's and it's in li- children's libraries and things like that, I feel like those interviews, some kid somewhere is going to become a scientist and change the world because they got inspired by reading an interview with somebody, especially if they're looking at like the the last issue has that interview with, with Megan Wilson, who's a colorist, who's also a scientist. And it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, she colored (laughs) the entire series. And I'm like, that's amazing. Like some kid somewhere is going to be inspired by that. And I love it. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, I'm super glad that you brought that up. Like, I think, getting to that last issue and reading uh, like reading her uh, her answers to all those questions that everybody has answered throughout the whole series um like i just oh i thought that was that was so cool and like so just like so beautiful um 
so yeah, like the whole I'm I'm glad Nick that that you that you said that the back matter doesn't leave that out because I think that was one of the most beautiful parts about the series is that there is all that back matter and it is really really great. Yeah, so uh, we've talked a lot, I guess, about the character and about like the world of the story. Um, how do we feel about the? Uh, I guess we can go into the actual story itself and the writing and like details of the art. So um, the story, you want to start there? Yeah. Okay. Sure, sure. So we talked a little bit about sort of the setup. So so Nadia takes this idea of the list and then turns around and says, I want to create um, this lab of, of young women who aren't on this list because there are less women on this list and try to make these cool, crazy, fancy things. Um, And hijinks ensue from there because the red room is trying to get her back. Uh, And one of her, her best friend from the red room is sent to kill her. Uh, And then, and then shit goes down. Um, So yeah. What Jess? what did you think about like the middle the middle few issues as she's gathering all these all these young women and and having all these adventures and um i i enjoyed the middle issues um i mean they weren't the greatest thing i'd ever read but i think for the audience that this book was going for i think it was enough um times the, the red room stuff and then the bringing all these girls together i feel like that may have at times been a little too much um like I would have maybe preferred to see if kind of one or the other, because because they knew they were only going to get. I mean, at least that was what was said on Twitter. They knew they were only going to get a certain amount of issues, and I feel like they they kind of they may have done a little bit more than they may have had time for. Um, but I really liked the concept of getting all the girls together and doing this, and I wish the story had maybe been more about like them getting into stuff and not necessarily only been about. Uh, the red room stuff. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, I mean, it wasn't bad. It's just, it, I think it wanted to do more than it had the time to do. Yeah. And uh, going back to the idea of the collections, I felt like all eight issues should have been collected together. Um, Instead it was split up into two, four issue collections. It really felt like the whole eight issues was the setup for future stories. Um, and that was, I guess, a, a major downside for me is that, like, I felt like we just put all this stuff together and then we didn't really, like, now it's not going anywhere. Um, and part of that is because it was cut off too quickly and it is coming back and that's cool. Um, but I, I, I just wish that we got a little bit more story here um, as opposed to so much setup. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that's why I it sounds terrible. I know it's going to sound terrible, but that's actually why I don't usually believe when they say on Twitter that they were going to only, they only knew they were getting this much. Cause I'm like a lot of these books that came out and only had a few issues, like even, even Iceman, like they were good, but they felt like they were building up to something else. And then suddenly they couldn't mm-hmm. do it. And it's like, it's like sometimes I, I, I question, like, I know no one wants to admit, you know, publicly, yeah, we got canceled, whatever. But 
sometimes it reads a different way than what is being said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I'm glad that it's coming back um, because I think if people, like especially young girls, if they read those first two trades, um, I really wish they were one. <laughs> but if they read this original eight issues, um, I think there's a, a lot of good places that they can go in the future. Um, but yeah, as it stands, it's just, uh, it's like, yeah, it's it's fun, but it it just doesn't feel as momentous as it could. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Like it really feels uh, like a few, at least like the first two or th- first three issues uh, feel like, like one and done issues. Like, yeah, we're going recruiting and that's, that's the arc and we're going to get a new member of the team, like after every issue, um, you know, and you're putting the, and you're putting the band together and I like on their own, those are great one and done stories um, of like, you know, we're going to go to these different parts of New York and find these cool, these cool people and and get them on our team. Uh, But then it transitions into the story about, Nadia being in the red room and you know like and ying and like her having the bomb in the back of her neck and like then them trying to escape the red room and like it's cool that that's the thing that like then the entire uh you know like the entire like girl like the genius what is genius in in action uh research labs something like i think that's right okay like that that's the thing that like that they you know have their first like big case for but i think they all right like if if they had gotten the band together and that had been an arc or like they'd have gotten the band together and then like had some adventures together as like as girl as the lab and then the ying stuff would have happened yeah it really does read like they got told they were going to get canceled after issue three um and the I liked that the last two issues were so the entire thing, it was like the first six issues were basically like the arc, the initial arc. Um, and then issue seven, uh, was sort of like an aftermath, like just cleaning up some things from that arc, like dealing with some plot threads that have been left over. And then issue eight was like just a little conclusion to, you know, like hopefully if we get more issues, this is what it would be like. Um, this is the direction that we're going to go in. Yeah 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 so it's uh, yeah it was just it just felt like we're saying uh like it it needed to go more places than it did Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah like i loved the last two issues those were probably my favorite two issues um only because i really like i really really like how uh, Janet is incorporated into everything and what her role for the team becomes because I think it's like the most interesting thing that anyone's ever done with Janet since like she came back to life as everyone does in comics yeah <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, bas- basically Janet becomes a part of Nadia's life in a huge way and she opens up the laboratory uh, she becomes like their benefactor basically (laughs) she gives them rooms and the labs and and she kind of realizes that she's been on her own for so long she's not really a mom type which i get but then she realizes like she is really connected to these two girls and especially nadia 
So she's she's more like inspired by Nadia and how she is and her her positivity and her desire to do everything. It kind of makes her feel reinvigorated about her own life. And I love that. And I really like Janet wielding all this power, like all this money and ability to call Cory Booker at two in the morning. <laughs> like, that's great. I know. That's I didn't great. realize that it was Cory Booker until, <laughs> until I reread it. And I was like, oh, shit, she calls Cory Booker. Yeah, Janet is from New Jersey. She's she's one of my people. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And like the the narration changes because like the first six issues you have, not that Nadia is like narrating, like there's not a narrator, but she has all those like side scientific facts or whatever in the first six issues. And those go away in seven and eight. And Janet's like you, you get Janet's inner musings through all of seven and eight. And that's just like beautiful, like watching her do all this stuff for Nadia and watching her. Um, like call Cory Booker in the middle of the night and just like orchestrate just this like beautiful um, just like life for this for this girl that she really doesn't have to do it for um, because like she's not like she's not her parent um, but like she does it anyway because of just the way that like that Nadia is and just like how inspiring that she is and yeah I think that's oh, I think it's the the first issue, I cried a little bit. And just like by the end of issue eight, I was just like in tears again <laughs> and again. Yeah. 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 The, we recorded like- a commercial recently. I'm on brand when I cry, apparently. That's, <laughs> that's what we've done. Um, yeah, those those last two issues, uh, definitely the best part of the series for me. Um, and I also, I like that it was from an adult's perspective. I'm like... Like, the entire time I was reading the series, I was like, okay, this is good, but I feel like I would have really loved it, like, seven or eight years ago. Um, Just, like, because I was more in, like, the YA age range that it's clearly going for. Um, But then when we have Nadia coming in and seeing it from the adult's perspective, then I really started connecting a lot more than I had been. And, um, yeah, that was just really nice to see their relationship play out from her perspective. Yeah, yeah yeah no like abs that's a that's a great point i didn't i didn't think about it like that that like the janet coming in is sort of having the like the the weathered sort of experience perspective come in and say like yeah you can't you can't have everything all the time but that like this sort of optimism and hope and like outlook on life is just infectious in a way that even even like adults want to want to be a part of something like this um which yeah is really cool. I agree. She has that oh, Nick's gone. She has that moment in uh in issue like in issue eight where like Janet's doing the the narrating and uh and like then Nadia finds out about the the time that uh that uh that Hank like domestically abused Janet and she starts bawling, but Janet's talking about like yeah. doing like taking all those girls to the, um, to the store so they can get dresses for this like party that they're going to throw. Um, just like the way that she talks about that. She says like, I wrote it down. The Avengers are all about saving lives, but they never stick around to make lives better. 
uh, and just like having her narration about trying to be the person that sticks around and tries to make life better for this girl that she has like minimal attachment with um, is, is just really, is just really pretty. Um, so Jeremy Whitley, I think it's worth noting that his um, like main claim to fame at this point is uh, his series of uh, all ages graphic novels called Princeless. And uh, something that I find fairly common uh, in like all ages or more toward the young adult category um, is that they tend to pack a lot into each page, um, especially if they're like originally uh, the size of like a full like standard comics page. Um, And you can really tell in the book, it's very, very dense. Um, There's just a lot going on. And there's a lot of people saying a lot of things. And I think it's interesting that the series is so dialogue heavy. Um, But it it allows for a lot of the really great emotional moments that you guys uh, keep on pointing out uh, that just really uh, show Nadia's perspective very well. Um, And that's cool. Um, But I also feel like it made the whole series a little bit... um, I don't want to say difficult to get through, but it was, there were a lot of like lulls for me personally, as I was reading. Um, and I mean, the art was great throughout. Um, I, the story was like good, but I just felt like there was nothing to really propel me forward into reading like this many like speech bubbles per page, you know? And it's not that like, I have anything against reading. I mean, I, you know, like I, I read all the time. It's not, it's more about like the denseness of it. And I wonder why that is. Um, and I wonder if that uh, attracts that audience more. Um, but it just sort of added to the whole idea for me that it wasn't really written for me. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Like I think that this book feels very dialogue heavy. Uh throughout like through the duration um and these these issues take a lot longer not a lot longer take longer to read than um like another 20 page comic of you know like like another comic of the of the same um length page wise uh the thing that i think works for me and and how whitley writes this uh and it's it's more so true in the in the chart the chartier uh the chartier god i wish i could get that name right those those pages like because just i think that the the way that she has such interesting page layouts in a lot of places in a lot of places makes the amount of dialogue just seem seem okay uh, like the the pages went like the last two issues with Veronica Fish and and Rostite and Ted Brandt. Uh, like they're uh, like they're very dialogue heavy in terms of like you have Janet's narration that takes up so much of the pages. And I think the issues work because the arts. I mean the art's beautiful and but like there's so much dialogue. But it's 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 necessary and like it's necessary to hear all of like Janet's thought bubbles everywhere and like see her going on and her going on goings on in her mind i just think 
I guess like the example of this, the like double page spread that that uh, Chartier does in in issue five when it's when the lab they're trying to figure out uh, what to do about about the 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 bomb in the back of Ying's neck. And there's so much dialogue on that page as they go from like morning to midday to afternoon to evening, trying to figure out what to do. Uh, but just like how interestingly the, the the letters are placed and just like how much there is to work with in, in that scene. Uh, I think that the art allows for for more dialogue. And maybe that's maybe that's just me. Yeah, no, you're definitely right about that. Um, I think just as a whole, the creative team really, like you could tell that they really worked with each other because the writing wouldn't have worked without like the way that Elsa Chartier like arranged everything like in layout wise. And like they clearly really collaborated. And then like she clearly very much collaborated with the colorist because like of, I mean, that whole uh, page that you just mentioned, the way that it goes throughout the different times of day, and clearly everybody was in collaboration with the letterer because the letterers, uh, they just never felt like they were intruding upon the art, and yet they were able to carry all of that dialogue. Um, yeah, so that's, it was definitely done very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think I think you're right. Like, I think in the hands of, of like a different artist or just a different creative team, the book could have very, very much and very well felt very dialogue heavy in a way that was, that was uncomfortable or off-putting. Um, so, yeah, I, I have to agree, agree with Nick here um, because I, this is no slight against writers because I do think writers have an important job, but so do artists. And I think with comic books, it's a visual medium you have to be telling us a story with art on this page. And I don't like when I'm reading a comic and it feels like I'm reading a novel because if I wanted to read a novel, I'd read a novel. That's a really interesting point. And it makes me think of like when, uh, when artists, they have like when artists start to write their own work, even though they're used to illustrating other people's work. Um, I feel like they have a lot less trust in themselves as artists and they end up using a lot more words on a page. Um, like recently I was reading The Flash by Francis Manipal, um, and I feel like like he, he just uses so many words that he doesn't have to. And um, with Jeremy Whitley, I don't think it's exactly that. Like he clearly works very well with Elsa yeah. Chartier. Um, but at the same time, I feel like he was just trying to pack so much into every issue um that just the way that he did it uh it just it just wasn't as effective as it could have been sometimes less is more and i'm not a comic book writer so it's it's weird for me to to judge it too harshly but i read comics for both the words and the actual art and i feel like with a lot of modern comics, the art sometimes gets covered up in in words, and it's like, does all of this really need to be said? Is it possible for you to show me more than tell me? And it's kind of like, I think with like Tom King working with particular artists and doing the nine uh, the, the nine panel grid layout, um, I get why people hate it. And think he's kind of overusing it. But when I look at something like Mr. Miracle, I like that there are many panels and there'll be pages at a time 
where there are where there is nothing being said and we completely know what's happening. I think with a story like this, it's harder to do that. But for me, most of the time, give me a little less telling and a little more showing. Trust the artist a little bit more. Um, and kind of edit yourself down a little bit. There's information that can be given to me without the entire page just being covered in words. I think that's possible. I think sometimes modern comics especially can get a little lost in filling up the page with word balloons. And it's like, all right, guys. It reminds me of, uh, you guys have probably seen it, the age of uh, the tie-in from Secret Wars. The page, uh, was it Age of Apocalypse? It might have been Age of Apocalypse. It was written by Marguerite Bennett. And it's this massive just chain of of word balloons takes up the entire page the entire background is blank aside from colossus kneeling down to talk to his daughter whose name i can't remember um and it's this incredibly long monologue that just there was no room for any other art on the page and it's so bad what's being said is great but the way that that's used and how much it takes up, it takes you right out of reading a comic. You feel like you're reading something else. So I'm just saying that, you know, trust the artist a little bit more. Maybe don't bombard your readers with all this information on one page at one time because it doesn't always read well. And uh, I just looked it up and uh, Jeremy Whitley is also an artist and Princeless, he writes and draws himself. So I wonder if, uh, like what I was saying about like artists not like fully trusting themselves to communicate visually and feeling like they need to overdo it with words. Uh, I wonder if he learned that from working on that series himself, or I mean, it could also be genre conventions, uh, like I was saying before too. But yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I think y'all are absolutely right. Like, I think that there have been comic book pages that I have seen that are just like egregious in the amount of words that are in there and they detract from the art and they distract from what's going on. Uh, I think it's also equally bad. And it's funny just that you mentioned Tom King. Cause I think he's one that I would say is very guilty of this sometimes to just have stupid dialogue on the pages that like detracts from just like the beauty of the art and like actually reading the page, like having not enough dialogue that you could have very well just said everything that you wanted to say with the art and not have had to have just, you know, dialogue for the sake of having dialogue. I, while there are times in this book and Unstoppable Wasp that there is a lot of dialogue and it seems very dialogue heavy and it does take longer to get through the, the book. I don't know that there are very many points that I feel like that Whitley's words and having the the narrative the narration box or a word balloon distracts from the art on the page um like i think i think looking at that double page spread is spread is like a great example like you can see everything the chartier is is doing on that page and there is a lot of dialogue but it's spread out so much that it just kind of like, and you're reading it in such like an intricate way that it, it feels necessary. And that, and, and I'm definitely saying that there are things that we could have done without here, but I, I, I don't know that I felt reading this as I have reading, reading other comics that 
the dialogue distracts from the art. Um, and that, yeah. that might just be, yeah. Me. And that, that goes back to what we, that goes back to what we were saying about how, like just the creative team works very well together. Um, and you know, the, the artists and the letterers are able to take, uh, just all of what Jeremy Whitley gives them and just make it work. Um, and that's the great thing about collaboration. Sometimes you can make it work. Um, <laughs> a quick uh, correction on my part. Jeremy Whitley is not an artist. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I, I looked up Princeless and I clicked on the Wikipedia article and I thought just because it didn't mention any artists up top, I thought uh, he did the art, but he did not. There's a different artist for everyone. Yeah. Shame, shame, shame. Sorry. <laughs> dishonor on you. So, dishonor uh, on your cow. Dishonor on your whole family. Okay. I deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anything else we want to say about this? Um, I just, I just want to mention that I really think, uh, as far as the art goes, I really think this book does something that I think Marvel and DC are trying to do a little bit more of, which is look a little more unique. Um, I loved every single thing art art wise that happened in this book. I thought it was adorable. It was adorable. I love how so many of Janet's outfits homage her actual superhero costume. Like that last dress, I love that. <laughs> issue eight, that gown she wears that's basically just her yellow oh, jacket yeah. costume. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I really, I really love the designs of each of the girls. They, they really did feel like they each came from somewhere different, and their style was very unique to them, and they felt modern. It wasn't just like clothing choices for the sake of they have to wear clothes. Um, so yeah, I, I really did enjoy the art in this book. Like it, it was really cute. It, it made me happy. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that's cool. And yeah. I, I tend to not notice uh, costumes and like, like just the, the things that people are wearing as much, but I do often notice uh, environments and like, I just love the way that Elsa Chartier draws um, interiors. Um, like it, every room has a very lived in feel um, like there's always, you know, like the, every teenage girl's room, it had like, like the socks, like draped over like the edge of the bed and like just the bed half unmade and just all sorts of little touches like that. Um, it's just every panel, like even when it was re- pretty small, uh, I felt it was very detailed to really give you the sense of, uh, what it feels like in that environment. She was, she was very, very good at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like, I think that she sold um, all of those girls' like personality through like what it was that they like that they were wearing. Like it never felt like um, that none of those characters weren't like weren't real or like that they were just like you just said, just just wearing clothes to be wearing clothes. Like they all definitely felt mm-hmm. like real characters and real people. Um, and I think a lot of that was chartiers and and fishes and and stein and brant's art mostly chartiers so yeah yeah oh well cool well we've gushed about this book for for a while is there anything else that y'all y'all want to say before we before we wrap up 
I'm glad it exists, but I don't think that I'm going to continue reading it when the new ones come out. What? Uh, just because it's not exactly for me. I I like it. Like, if I had a younger, like, niece or cousin, I would give it to them. Um, but alas, I do not. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm probably not going to read it in single issues but if it since it is going to be a mini series and they're announcing it as such i'm guessing that the story may be a little bit more compact than this one was it, it may have like a really definitive ending instead of kind of leaving us off with like wow i wish there was an issue nine in a couple weeks <laughs> um but yeah i'm excited for what comes next for her like i hope she's a character that has longevity and and it's it's definitely something I would get a full trade for and sit down and read it. Oh, I, I mean, like, obviously I'm not a young girl who needs to be told I can do all these things and I have all these options and like it's okay to want to do all these things. But like I think that, and like and 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 not to say that that's the reason that this book exists. Um, but uh, because I think that like the message of just that, that like your, your pat, like your past or the actions of other people on your life doesn't define you. And that like, like trauma doesn't define you. And like all these things are not who you are. Like, I think that that's universal. And I think that that's why I get choked up reading a lot of this book. And like, I think that, in that sense, it's for everyone. I mean, like, yeah, like it's it's skewed towards an audience, but I think that I think I absolutely think this comic is yeah. is for everybody. Yeah, totally. And it, yeah, and I, I always think uh, in terms of that, like any anything can be enjoyed by anybody, except for like if it's like some X rated thing, you don't give that to a five year old, obviously. But like, you get what I mean. Like, if it's if it's for all ages, I feel like it should be for all ages. And this book definitely is. Um, I just don't think that it's particularly for me. Okay. Yeah, and like I, I love the message. I just uh, the way that sorry the way that they go about it, and I guess uh, a lot of it is in the way that it's written. Um, yeah, just not just not huge on it, but it's good. I'll give it that. Okay. Okay, that's. That's fair. Yeah, I hope that I hope Nadia sticks around. Um, I am a little bit concerned that that's probably not going to happen, especially because it looks like that her and Enriri and like Amadeus Cho and and some of them have kind of been uh, shoehorned onto the onto the champions. And I don't know how long that book will will stick around. Um, I don't know if Nadia will continue to have a book after this miniseries ends, but I will absolutely be buying this book when it comes out in singles. Um, I, I, I really did. I just loved, I just loved this series and, um, and yeah, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep reading. <laughs> well, cool. Well, folks, I think that that is going to do it for us this week. Um, we will be back for our, regularly scheduled fourth friday of the month in a couple weeks at the end of july to talk about some of the some of the marvel news and fun things that have been going on in marvel comics through the month of july san diego comic-con is next week so i would expect a lot 
of big Marvel announcements. And so I anticipate that we will have plenty to talk about between that news and the issues that have come out this month, like uh Coates and Lynel use Captain America and spent Nick Spencer and Ryan Lotley's amazing Spider-Man. We will have tons of Marvel content coming your way, but until then, if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, you can find me at KB Gregory 13. And then also over at multiversity comics, uh, Jess, where can they find you on the interwebs? Um, I'm on Twitter at just cam and and you can find all my writing at multiversity comics and also geeked out nation. And I am, a. Uh on multiversitycomics.com, still reviewing the second season of Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, I am at my absolute favorite point in the show. So like from now until the end of the season, like expect uh, tons of gushing. Um, (laughs) But uh, if you're listening to this on your way to Florida Supercon, I'm going to be there. So hit me up. Um, My Twitter is at npalmarywrites. And that's it. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with more Marvel content for you. So keep listening, reading, and watching, and we'll see you then. 